Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hawaii Kai Church, and thank you for joining us in worship, and I hope that you had a great Thanksgiving week. Uh, I am personally filled with so much gratitude for you all and for this church, Ohana. Uh, you mean so much to us. Last Sunday's Thanksgiving potluck was especially such a joy, and uh, truly it is that one of the great gifts uh, we've received from God uh, is this church. And so I'm very grateful for you guys. I know that many of you would say the same thing, uh, but we love you. Now, at this time, I invite you to take out your Bible or Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to Luke chapter 12 and verse 1 as we continue our study through the book of Luke. Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 12 is our passage today, and that passage can be found on page 871 if you are using a church Bible, page 871. Luke chapter 12 and verse 1. And before we look at our text, would you please join me in prayer? Uh, Father, we thank you for this time of worship and, and for this church family. And, and as we come uh, to your word, would you make your voice heard and known uh, even when it does come through these unclean lips? Uh, speak to us in a way that no one else can. Uh, teach us, God, and bring us near to you that, that we might see Jesus more and more. Uh, we know that only by the Holy Spirit can these things happen, and so please move in our hearts, especially in a text like this that deals with fear and, and hypocrisy. Would you please uh, magnify yourself uh, through the preaching of your word? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This text before us today is about uh, what we should fear and what we should not fear and how it is that Jesus revolutionizes fear for us. Because if Jesus... Christ really is who he is, and that he has come a first time, and that he will come a second time, then it should really change everything about what we do fear and what we no longer have to fear in the in-between, and what we do live for, and what we will have to be intentional about not living for. This text and the coming text are really about discipleship, predominantly in light of Jesus' return, uh, which transforms all of our current priorities. Now remember that Jesus had just had an all-time awkward dinner with the religious gurus of the day. They invite him over for a meal, and he then points the finger squarely at them, charging them with hypocrisy. As those who wash the outside but keep the inside all dirty, religious pain on hearts filled with greed and wickedness, uh, upside-down priorities, vain and egocentric religion, contaminating the people around them like unmarked graves, loading people with religious burdens and never freeing people to see the intent of the law, public about their veneration for prophets and the word of God, and yet disobedient to it from within, so much so that they are actually murderers of God's mouthpieces and are going to be held utterly accountable. These ones never do actually enter life, and they actively prevent others from finding true life as well. Uh, this is a serious and detailed indictment upon the most religious people of the day. And all of that woe pronouncing happens within a single meal as Jesus very intentionally insults his host because he does not want them to think that they are in a good spot spiritually when they are not. And their collective response to it all had not been one of repentance, although the opportunity had been graciously given to them. But their response to the prophet of prophets is similar to what happened to all of the prophets prior, that they want to get rid of Jesus. And it will be in the coming chapters that they will be responsible for the death of the Messiah. 
The days which are coming ahead for Jesus and his followers are going to be filled with animosity, and these days can, and they will elicit fear from his followers. And it's within this context that the scene changes, though our text flows from it, where Jesus wants to prepare his people about appropriate and inappropriate fears. We read in verse 1 of chapter 12 this. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together so that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Jesus' priority for his disciples is to fear hypocrisy. Be afraid of that inconsistency of life, because a veil of hypocrisy is going to be uncovered. It's not a matter of if, but when. And this is a powerful warning against this kind of life where the lips can say one thing and the heart lives another, where religion is more of a show than it is a vitality within. All of that is going to be exposed. And therefore, we ought to fear hypocrisy spreading from within and out to the people around us. Now, the scene is important to note, while the Pharisees and the lawyers are scheming against Jesus, that has not stopped Jesus from being popular amongst the people. There are thousands upon thousands pressing in to listen to the words that would come out of his mouth, so much so that they are actually trampling upon each other. There's just been that tragedy in South Korea where the crowds pressed in upon each other, smashing against the buildings, uh, so much so that people suffocated and many actually died. Uh, the scene here is not exactly the same. There are no alleyways and tall buildings and whatnot, but there is a frenzy here. There's this trampling. And when Jesus sees that, he actually turns to his disciples. He turns to his followers first because there's something in this moment which is more pressing and more urgent than the pressing and urgent crowds. Beware of the leaven of hypocrisy. If there's any a priority for Jesus' followers, even when there are crowds of people who need ministry and are seemingly desperate for it, even when there is a world out there that needs to know who Jesus is, the priority of Jesus' disciples is to be on guard against hypocrisy and to fear an inconsistent heart spreading from within. We have to make sure there is integrity here before we begin to look out there. Now, nobody... Uh, likes a hypocrite. Hypocrisy is not viewed as a virtue in, in any culture across the world, at least that I know of. The heroes of every narrative are never the hypocrites. No one idolizes them, and yet strangely it is that the danger to be one, the allure of it, is still very prevalent. Because there's a great benefit that can be had in presenting and projecting a certain image, even if it's not true within. To deliberately deceive by putting on a charade, that can reap a lot of benefits from the people around you. When we make the outside look better than the inside is, we often get better treatment than what we actually deserve. The Pharisees, they love their attention, their fancy religious robes, the best seats in the house, and the people listening to their long and intricate prayers and all the ooing and aahing, and they love to be the spiritual police and cherished the authority that they had over the people, appearing to be righteous and holy when internally they were really loving and fueling their own status. They didn't really love God. 
They love themselves and use an appearance of godliness to feed themselves. And this is not something that just happens in the religious realm. We always put our best face forward. We like to appear to work hard, but especially when others are looking. In a world of social media, people are more fake than ever, even when trying to portray themselves as being genuine to their own hearts. I mean, even pictures for Christmas cards. We take one. Can we take another one? Is there a filter that we can use to make us look better than we actually look? But we crave that attention uh, that scratches the itch we have. And so we want to project something better than what may actually be true, and we want to be treated in a certain way. And so we present ourselves to invite just that. Hypocrisy is appealing not because it is a virtue or noble in and of itself. It's appealing because we get a benefit from it. And it's easier to put out an ideal image that we want projected than to actually be the person who we are from within. Jesus, in this context, is focused primarily on a religious hypocrisy and that it is like leaven, which is that substance that typically works its way through dough to make it rise. It's, it's something that's powerful and pervasive, but you hardly would know it's even working. It doesn't make any noise. It doesn't create any scene. You can't see it, but it's in there, and it spreads, and it changes the dough completely, and you don't need all that much to do it. And that's exactly what religious hypocrisy can do in the human art. You hardly notice it. You can sing, I choose to lose my life and find it in you. We can sing all about the glory of Jesus and yet quietly fantasize about the glory of the world instead and then not lose sleep over that contradiction. We can sing, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. And then spend our lives and consecrate them on almost anything else but him. We can sing, take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. And then withhold from generosity to the church, to the great commission, to mercy, and then not withhold to self-adulation and comfort and all of life's upgrades. And it doesn't kill the conscience because it's ever so subtle and we can nod our heads and sing our songs. It can actually become quite comfortable to do exactly that because hypocrisy is like leaven where we don't even notice it happening at all, and yet it is transforming everything about us, which is why we ought to fear hypocrisy and beware of its force within each of our hearts. Uh, what is interesting, I think, to know is that these disciples Jesus is talking to, uh, they've already left everything to follow him. These are not the ones who are here at church just a couple times a year. They've left everything. They've drastically changed their lives on account of Jesus. A few of them left their family businesses of fishing. Others left lucrative careers in tax collecting, their involvement in political movements. Every single one of them have turned away from family and friends to make Jesus their priority and follow him wherever he goes. They've already done more than most of us in this room, and yet Jesus tells them, even them, you, you beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Because it's easy for any of us to begin with good beginnings and then change ever so subtly over time. Even the most zealous, the most fervent, the most sacrificial, that leaven, even just a little bit of it, can work even in their hearts and it can work in our hearts as well, which is why we ought to fear it. How much of your religion has changed over time? These are the times in the text where we have to be honest with ourselves. 
Uh, much of our faith has become uh, more show than it is go. Uh, in our profession, without it being a true inward reality, hypocrisy, it only benefits, it only works when the cover stays on and the mask remains in place. But Jesus is clear here in his warning to beware of it that what we think is private isn't gonna remain private. And what we think is our secret is not gonna continue to be so. He says very clearly, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Nothing. Even what's said in the dark and what is whispered will be brought to light and proclaimed very publicly. This is a promise and a declaration, brothers and sisters. It's better to live a consistent life inside and out now, not pretend, than to be horribly found out later. And the Pharisees, what they whispered to each other, it got found out later. Judas Iscariot with his backroom deals in the dark, he got found out later because it all does come out. If not in this life, then in the one to come. This is the future of all hypocrisy. Uncovering it, exposing it, and removing the veil of it. And the judgment is coming, however delayed it might appear to be in the meantime. And so hypocrisy's supposed benefits are really not worth the cost at all. In a church family, we must not invest in a two-faced, uh, divided kind of lifestyle. We should fear it instead. We shouldn't feel secure when we do it and nothing happens to us bad uh, to reap the benefits of our reputation because of what we portray, even if the inside doesn't match. Hebrews 4.13 says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now, before we move on, brother or sister, if you are struggling with something on the inside, the worst thing that any of us could ever do is pretend that it's okay and to pretend that we are okay and then to go on and fake it. The Christian faith, the gospel assumes that not everything is okay on the inside. It's good to confess when we are not doing well. We know the human art, how imperfect and how sinful we each can still be. 1 John 1, 8 and 9, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Exposing sin on our own accord not having it be exposed because we've been caught. It should be a regular part of a healthy Christian life to confess things like lust or anger or bitterness or marriage conflict, a lack of contentment, a greed for more. To confess these things for the goal of repentance and life change should be a regular part of Christian life within the church community. But it is hard to confess those things precisely because the leaven is already in us. I know it's hard to confess shameful things, even when they're shameful things right here, because it can put each of us into a very vulnerable position. And the human predicament to deal with sin has always been to cover up sin with our own devices. Adam and Eve, they're in the garden. God says, where are you, Adam? And what do they do? They run and hide. And what do they cover themselves with? Fig leaves and whatnot. That's what we always try and do. No, but God has to cover us. 
We have to be who we are. We have to ask him for that help and ask him for that change. And we really do need to confess to change. And that should be our pattern, brothers and sisters. And, And this church needs to be a safe place to do just that. We can be fierce on sin and very fervent with our sanctification. Uh, desire holiness with all our, all our might and, and yet still be a safe place for sin to be unveiled so that it could be treated without it being accommodated or enabled. I would encourage each of you to find someone that you trust. Uh, we're not into coerced confessions. Find someone that has earned your trust. Find someone who has convinced you that they have your best interest in mind, your best spiritual interest in mind, and slowly uh, start the habit of beginning to open up more and more. The church is not a, a service you attend. The church is a people and a family you are a part of. And we, uh, if you need any help, you can always contact one of the elders or pastors. Uh, we are here for you. We are not above you in this sense. Uh, chances are, whatever you confess, we've struggled with it in our own life, but we wanna come alongside of you. And so in light of who Jesus is in his first and second coming, We ought to fear hypocrisy much more than we naturally do, for a time is coming when its veil will be ripped to shreds and everything is going to be made known. Verse four, we continue. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has guilt, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. If Jesus is who he is, then we ought not to fear other people and what they can do to us. But we ought to fear God himself, who has way more power and more authority over each of us for all of eternity. And yet, who at the same time cares for even the head upon each of our uh, hairs upon each of our head? An appropriate fear of God will necessarily cast out fear of other people. When we know Him more and more, we're going to fear others less and less. There is a set of uh, twin realizations that every believer must have: that God is very, very powerful and has authority over body and soul for all of eternity. And that God is very, very lovingly considerate of every detail of your life as a Christian down to the singular hair follicle of which each of us have 100,000, some of us more, some of us a little bit less. And these twin truths act as the bumper pads of sorts for where an appropriate fear of God will cast out all other fears. First, God is very, very powerful. He has authority over body and soul for all of eternity, and that is in contrast to what any human power can do to any one of us. Now, human powers, they actually can do quite a bit to us. Jesus is preparing his followers for an upcoming persecution because if they're going to put the Son of God on a cross of shame and torture, what do you think the world is going to do to his followers? And it is with any threat of pain and suffering, what can happen is that we get so wrapped up in fear of that pain and suffering. We fear the bad treatment, the fear of social ostracism, fear of being embarrassed if we claim Jesus too hard. I'm not gonna be cool if people know how much I love him. And in this first century, and for many believers around the world in the current century, there's this fear of, of loss of career, 
fear of being arrested, jailed, scourged, uh, first century put out of the synagogue, which means you're out of regular living, and really, ultimately, a fear of a painful death. Most of the 12 disciples will die a painful death of martyrdom. But Jesus does not want them to fear any of that. And, and, and the perhaps strange way he urges them not to fear that is by saying, look, all those guys can do is kill you. All they can do is throw stones at your body until it's crushed and broken and dead like Stephen in the book of Acts. All they can do is light your body on fire while you're still alive like many reformers were lit on fire. All they can do is crucify you upside down until you die like they did to Peter according to tradition. I mean, all they can do is that. That's Jesus' argument. But all of that is actually a lot to be real. But if Jesus is who he says he is, and he's come a first time and he's going to come a second time and this is all true, then your body on this earth and your existence in this world is just a mere fraction of an eternal one. And if there's anyone, anyone whom every person on earth should truly fear, it is the one who after death has authority to cast into hell. God the Father has this very authority. Now using hell as a motivator for righteous living is kind of out of style right now. It sounds too archaic and judgy and fire and brimstony. And sometimes the church's fear of sounding too out of date, uh, much of the church has dropped hell as being any kind of motivator to right living at all. Jesus, he doesn't drop hell. He actually presses into its reality here. The word he uses, Gehenna, is this valley outside of Jerusalem, a ravine of smoking refuse. The fire never did die. And it represented, therefore, this perpetual burning, this existence of always dying and yet never dead, a place of constant burning and never finally being consumed, which is to visualize something of the eternal existence of those whom God judges forever, an image of hell's torments, which at the very least is an everlasting fire, if not more so because perhaps fire is the only thing on this earth which is parallel to that kind of existence. And if we were to think upon the reality of it, which Jesus himself does not deny at all, if we were to think upon the reality of hell for even five minutes a day, we would be much more fearful of the authority of the one who can cast us into that that even hanging upon a cross upside down for several hours before we suffocate is nothing to be compared with that. The concept of fearing God is pretty unpopular in current times, but frankly, it's been popular, unpopular even when it was popular. There is to be this reverence and this appropriate trembling that we actually know who this God is, akin to what Isaiah felt in Isaiah 6 when he fell before the throne room when he realized how powerful this Yahweh truly is, that if we understand just a mere fraction of it and his authority over each of us and our bodies and our eternal souls, we might be much more reverent than we are currently. Yahweh, he is no user-friendly deity, Philip Ryken says. He is not to be worshiped with casual triviality or be given leftovers to. Jesus says here that God is to be feared, he is to be treated with respect and all because he holds the power of eternal judgment. And when this sinks in a little bit more than it does, uh, we won't be scared of being put out of synagogues at that point or being called lame or being called uncool or being poor in this life 
when our relatives or neighbors shake their heads and roll their eyes because they find out we're Christians and we believe the Bible and they think that the world would actually be a better place if there were fewer people like us in it. We're not fearful of those opinions, nor do we tremble at their power, as if that is somehow even comparable or even to be called power because the fear of God the Father, when we understand more and more his authority, it really does swallow up all other fears. And it gives to Jesus' disciples a greater courage. John Knox, the Scottish reformer, I read this in Philip Ryken's commentary, who took it from William Barclay. John Knox in the Scottish Reformation, who stood up to world powers, he stood up to monarchs, queens, without wavering or flinching a bit, even though they held his future in the palm of their hands. This man, John Knox, God used to bring his nation back to God. But when his corpse was being lowered into the ground, someone at the gravesite pronounced Knox's epitaph, and it said, here lies one who feared God so much that he never feared the face of man. That's what this text is telling us. John Hooper, when sentenced to die for preaching the gospel during the English Reformation, the people around him encouraged him to recant. You're going to die, John. Just recant, just deny the gospel of justification by faith. And the Roman church, who was in full power at the time, the Catholic church, who holds your bodily future in their hands, just recount this one doctrine and your life will be spared. But it was the doctrine in which our salvation in Jesus Christ rests. And John Hooper, because he feared God more than he did people, and believed in eternity, and therefore did not fear those who could only wield their might against his body. He said, life is sweet and death is bitter, but eternal life is more sweet and eternal death is more bitter. These are not tall tales, brothers and sisters. This is history of people who've been captivated by a view of God the Father that was altogether appropriate Do we actually believe the same thing? That there really is an eternity and that this aging body of ours is not what is ultimate, but that our souls will rise and new bodies will be given and a time will come where every suffering we've ever faced in this short life on earth will be a mere forgettable fraction of our existence in the future with him. Do we fear and revere and recognize the power and authority of God the Father, which is far greater than what any human power has over our mere mortal bodies. But this truth alone, that humans can only kill you and God can send you to hell, so fear him and not them, this truth alone would be very unhealthy for us to dwell on without its twin assumption, which Jesus gives to his people at the same time. His authority is not only to be recognized as authority over heaven and hell, his authority is to be recognized in his particular care over every single one of his disciples. And this is where Jesus points to little birds as theologians and preachers, Martin Luther says. Five sparrows sell for two pennies at the market and God knows every single one of them. You think what you are going through, God doesn't know about it. You think what you're currently enduring, that he's not right there with you? Hey, look at the birds. You know, we got a nest in the corner of our house, and the babies cry for their food, and their mom brings them in. I don't care about those birds at all. 
I actually want them to move to someone else's house. But each of their little lives and their little squawks is noticed by God even when they are worthless to us. Every single one of your 100,000 hair follicles on top of your head have a number, and God knows, which means God the Father is intimately acquainted with every single detail of your life, and you are very valuable to him, believer. Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What does Jesus call his followers in verse four of our text? Friends. We're friends of the Son of God. If there's anything of pain, of suffering, we know that it is for a purpose. God does not forget his people. The Father does not forget a single heir, even the white ones. There's no such thing as chance. There's no such thing as luck. And even the persecuted saints and the martyrs, each are individually known by the Father and upheld by him and are cared for him by the one who holds uh, all power and authority. The God who holds all eternity, life and death in his hands is the same God who knows and loves each of his believers. And this is where we see the fear of God, not as slavish worry about punitive retribution. But this is where we begin to see the fear of the Lord beginning to become the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 3, 3 and 5, 3 through 6, 5 through 6, sorry. Not because he is an unpredictable tyrant with power and rage. No, he is a faithful father who is very powerful. And we need to understand that power, but who wields that power and love and care where we can trust him even if we were to die for him and that we in the end will not regret ever dying for him. And so the question is, who do you fear? Who is it whose opinions uh, do you care most about in your life? Who are you trying to be cool in front of? Who do you want to notice you? As long as we fear anyone or anything in this world more than we fear the Lord, our God, the Father, uh, we're going to be a slave to it. Everyone else's power is actually very limited. And when we recognize his power and his love, these twin truths, we can really be set free. For the better fear will swallow up all the lesser ones. Uh, verse 8, we continue. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Well, there is an appropriate fear and reverence and love for God the Father um, to expel other fears in life. There's also to be the same for the Son and the Spirit as well. And Jesus is very explicit about this. There's this triune, I think, fear in our passage. Uh, notice first that our acknowledgement or our denial of Jesus before the people of the world determines his acknowledgement or his denial of us before the angels of God. When Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
I don't think that Paul means a private and quiet whisper of confession. Jesus is Lord. Or confession only within the safe confines of the church with other Christians around who would nod their heads at the same statement. We must be unashamed to let all see that we believe in Jesus. We serve him, we love him, and care more for his praise and his glory than we do for the approval of those who are around us. If we love him and revere him, we must not be embarrassed about living like it. People need to know that we're Christian. We're not undercover agents, at least in our context here in Hawaii. And if the great majority of the people in your life don't have the faintest idea that you are Jesus's, it actually may be an indicator that you are not his at all. And that's not what I'm saying. That's what Jesus is saying in this kind of visual split screen in which there are two scenes happening, one in heaven and one on earth, two courts, where what takes place in the lower one also happens in the higher one. And the one on earth has his people living their lives, and if they are embarrassed of Jesus before others and can't acknowledge him but have effectively denied him. And deny, I don't mean gun to the head, deny Jesus, or die, deny. Although I don't think that uh, situation is excluded. But by deny, I think Jesus means more so, in addition to that, our ever-present daily reality of if we hide Jesus and camouflage ourselves in the world and are embarrassed of him, ashamed, especially around certain groups of people because of what it means for how it might mean for how they might treat us. Because we don't want anyone, God forbid, to ever feel uncomfortable. If that scene is happening on earth, Jesus says the scene in heaven is much the same, that before the angels of God in the final judgment, Jesus will not acknowledge us as his own. And he will instead deny us in that day. And Jesus presents this kind of split screen to us because often it is that we only see this scene. We only see what's inches before our faces. We only look at the ones who are staring at us presently. Whereas Jesus is informing us of the courts in heaven that they are also watching. And perhaps if we were more cognizant of that fact, we would actually be a little bit more bold about our love for Christ because we know his eyes are upon us. Now, what Jesus is saying here uh, before his disciples and before thousands of people is actually really profound. Jesus is declaring who he is, that he himself is the very hinge point of salvation, that anyone's acceptance or denial of him sets their eternal future, that what we do with Jesus determines absolutely everything about us. For those who deny that Jesus ever claimed deity, I don't know what they do with a verse like this, where a human's entire future hinges upon just one person, and that person is somehow not God. And so the, so the basic exhortation here is to fear and revere the Son for who he is, much like we do the Father. Now, for those of you and those of us who have denied Christ in the past, Maybe we are embarrassed if we want to be real. And we don't want to be like that in the future. I, I think Peter's example to us is very encouraging, that our past failures do not have to define our current and ongoing reality. This declaration of Jesus is not you failed once, that's it. But it's how you live for me before the eyes of others, characteristically 
from this point towards the end. Now, this is not promoting salvation by works, nor is it denying the doctrine, doctrine of justification by faith alone. But we mustn't dull Jesus' words here. Justification is not alone. It accompanies and it fuels a life which is radically different from what it once was. And so we are to live boldly for Christ in fear of him. I want you to notice, secondly, a fear and reverence for the Holy Spirit as well. And this is perhaps an even stronger statement of his deity than we see almost anywhere else. Jesus begins by saying really something crazy, that those who speak against the Son of Man, those who speak against Jesus, the one whom hinges the eternal destiny of all people, even those who speak against Jesus, they can be forgiven. But then we look at the ascension of his words next. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And so in one sense, Jesus is placing the Holy Spirit at a higher level than he even places himself when it comes to the application of salvation, which is a very confidently bold statement about the Spirit's place within the Godhead as being equal to and not less than the Father or the Son. If we're going to revere the Father and we're going to fear and revere and love the Son, then we better treat the Holy Spirit the same. And then we get to this unforgivable sin with the Pharisees attributing Jesus' power to Beelzebul, the prince of demons, in chapter 11 and verse 15 of Luke, and their repeated denial to recognize the Holy Spirit's work in Jesus' life. But even going beyond that denial in saying that all of that is evidence which really serves to prove that Jesus is satanic instead, and then more than that with their own response to it all being Jesus crucified, which only serves to prove their hardness of heart, which will not be reversed. I think this unforgivable sin is found in that kind of response to the Holy Spirit in the work of Jesus Christ. I can't define it exactly. The point here more so in Luke, however, is the Spirit's place in the Godhead as equal, and the Spirit's place in the ministry of Jesus as essential. And the Bible is clear of the Spirit's necessary ministry in the work of salvation for you and for me. We cannot be saved without the Holy Spirit's work. John 16, 8 tells us that the Spirit convicts of sin, righteousness, and the coming judgment. John 16, 13 says the Spirit will guide us into all truth. Verse 14, that the Spirit will glorify Jesus Christ and take what is his and declare it to us. That's the application of Jesus to us. Brothers and sisters, none of us can be saved. None of us can see the truth of the word. None of us can see the glory of Jesus Christ without the work of the Holy Spirit. He is just as essential to the application of salvation as the Father and the Son. And even more is his work important to the actual individual applied that somehow blasphemy against him is of an even greater kind of sin in degree and irreversibility than speaking against Jesus himself. And therefore, if there's any fear and reverence and love for God the Father and God the Son, there needs to be that same appropriate amount for the Holy Spirit as well. But just like the Father's fear had twin truths, so the Spirit has twin truths as well. Blasphemy against Him, altogether something else. By the same Holy Spirit, He comes to your aid when you need it the most. And the scene is such that Jesus is telling his followers, you're going to get arrested. You're going to be put before authorities. You're going to be afraid. 
In the first century, they're going to put you out of the synagogues. You're going to be brought before rulers and authorities to bear witness. And that can be a very scary thing to endure. But revere the Holy Spirit more. For in those moments where you don't know how to speak and you're anxious about what to say, it is God the Spirit in that very hour who will teach you what you ought to say. Now, this doesn't mean we don't study our Bibles and take classes and whatnot. What this means is that in these pressurized situations where we can't really prepare and we're anxious about what we're going to say and we're brought before the powers of the world, God does not expect you to rest upon your own power, your own wit, and your own intellect but that God, the Spirit, God himself, will actually come to your aid when you need to bear witness, and he somehow will speak through your lips. We see example after example of this. Acts 4, Peter and John arrested. Remember Peter denying Jesus Christ three times before the little servant girl. Peter and John get arrested. They're brought before the authorities, and Peter boldly preaches the gospel with eloquence. That ain't Peter. That's God, the Holy Spirit. Stephen in Acts 6 and 7, the guy who serves tables, he's brought before powers, and he gives a definitive history of God's dealings with Israel and then preaches the gospel clearly to them and calls them to repentance before he's stoned to death. That's not Stephen. That's the Holy Spirit speaking through Stephen. And for us in the future, even under the threat of a coming potential persecution. I mean, Christian, now, nowadays, uh, we're painted as a people filled with bigotry. Uh, we're called a people of hate. Uh, what we believe is, is being defined as discriminatory. We don't have to fear the world. For God himself, the Holy Spirit will come to us in our time of need. So that through our lips the beauty of his gospel might be proclaimed with all power and clarity as light in the midst of darkness whether people are willing to receive it or not. God the Spirit will help us. And so we're to fear hypocrisy. We're to fear, revere, love the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. His fear will cast out all lesser fears. But brothers and sisters, the Father who holds our body and soul for eternity. He's the one who so loved the world that he sends his son. The son upon whom our eternal destiny hinges upon. This one decides, I'm going to die for my people and wash them whiter than snow. And the Holy Spirit, who the world's worst blasphemes, he's the one who says, I will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and the coming judgment. He's the one who shines a light upon Jesus Christ so that we might see his glory. Who else do we want to live for? Who else is worthy to spend our lives upon? Not us. All for him. Would you please join me in prayer? Father, we, we, um, we come to texts like this with a little bit of fear and trembling. Uh, there, there's some form of hypocrisy within each of us, God. Would you alert us to it through your spirit? Help us to fear it as we should. As uh, more deadly than the worst of cancers. And spreadable at that. So I pray that you would open our eyes and help us find people in the church. Uh, to have a safe place to expose certain things that we might 
uh, be nursed back to health. I pray, God, that you would bring us to a, a proper fear and reverence and love uh, for you, three in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that we might know you, love you, enjoy you, revere you, worship you, give you our all, choose to lose our lives and find it in you, choose to be consecrated, Lord, our lives for you. I pray, God, that you would prevent us from wasting our lives on lesser things and help us and prepare us to be a strong testimony in a world that seems to deny you more and more. Would you strengthen our church family, uh, how small we may be, and would you make us a bright and shiny light on this side of the island and throughout the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.